Oi, oi, I'm Jimmy Bullard and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hi, Bully. Great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Garin Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Garin Thomas Cycling Club, brought to you by Zwift. Jump on your Zwift Hub One and jump into Zwift. Welcome along. Nice to see you, G. You are on top of a mountain in the middle of the Atlantic and from the look on your face, you're having a good time. Yeah, it's been, it's nice to be back up here, actually. Um, it just feels cleaner, you know, it's, I don't know, it feels different to being at 2000 meters in the Alps where there's trees and, um, you know, vegetation and animals. Whereas here, it's a bit more barren and rugged. It feels like you're on the moon, really, with all the... Um, the volcanic rock and stuff around but uh no it's nice and the weather can't beat can't fault the weather at the minute it's um it was mid to high 20s down at the coast oh. the other day yeah but it is strange though you know like you're up here and you're on the regime you got your salad and whatever try not to eat too much then you drop down there and you're riding through these little um well riding through las americas or you know something like that and you just see all the bars and Everyone's having a pint at like 11, half 11 <laughs> in the sun. You're like, oh, that's that's appealing. But um, no, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's a good group of us. There's only six of us riders, but there's a few other teams around, which I'm not the biggest fan of. You know, when you go into breakfast and then you're seeing guys from like, I've got no, nothing against them, but you see some guys from FDJ or, you know, Bob Jungles has turned up now. Or there's a few Italians. Yeah, you just like, you just don't want to see other bike riders, to be honest, but um, you know, it's I can live with that for um the good training here, but we don't have a chef though, Tom. Or, um, yeah, we they didn't have one because they had the camp here last year as well, and they said it worked well um for January, a bit more relaxed and whatever, than have the restaurant food. Um, I guess it works well in that you don't overeat because it's it's more just fuel, really rather than you know with James who we had on the pod last week it's super tasty you know and you, it's quite easy to eat that stuff and you look forward to that whereas here it's a bit more just sort of like yeah get it in you fuel up but on the tuna salad it's the same as 13 years ago when I came <laughs> up here for the first time nothing nothing's changed about it it's comforting in a way but also just quite like come on mix it up a bit do something a bit different but you know, the same stuff, the same white asparagus on there and <laughs> the sweet corn and the the egg and whatever. Yeah. So It sounds like they stuck. I mean, look, in some ways I've got a sympathy for them because a tuna salad is a tuna salad. But actually in the real world, the tuna salad game has moved on. We're talking miso elements. We're talking, you know, searing. It's not what it was 12 years yeah. ago and they need to reflect that even if they are on top of a volcano in the middle of the Atlantic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think the majority of the menu is the same as well. But um, no, yeah, it's, it's ticking a box. But I was speaking to the guys as well because 
you know, it's a young young man's game at the minute, isn't it? There's a lot of guys that have come up here, you know, two or three times and they think that's a lot. I was like, boys, I've been here about 15, 16 times now. <laughs> um, but I was telling them the first time we came, we, we didn't have Google Maps, which sounds bonkers, doesn't it? But so we had to buy a map and there wasn't really many roads on this map that Tim bought. So um, we didn't know any of the roads. We didn't really know where we were going and stuff back in the day. And all the roads were super like bumpy and rough and not very nice. And there's one climb, well, in, like in the mountains book that we did, there's a bumpy climb in there. There is. And I was like, oh, are we going down the bumpy climb then? And they're like, what? There's, there is no bumpy climb. I was like, oh, you know, they went down to Chio. That's not bumpy. I was like, yeah, I know, but that's the name of it now, isn't it? You can't just go around changing names. I was like, there's a road in Cardiff when we were kids. Red Road. It was black before I was... They resurfaced it and it turned black when I was about 17. But it's still a Red Road. It'll forever be the Red Road, even though, yeah, the last time it was red was about 25 years ago. But, um, so yeah, it just makes you feel a bit like, it shows like technology, doesn't it? You know the thought of no Google Maps? It's impossible to get your mind. Yeah, Yeah. imagine, I was thinking this the other day because obviously the Google Maps and Waze and whatever it is we have on our phone has superseded the sat-nav that used to stick on the windscreen, which at the time Mm. seemed revolutionary. But it seems almost impossible now that if you were doing a long drive somewhere that you would have a map on your lap, maybe one with a ring binder, and you'd use that and actual signs. You would use signs to tell you where you were going. You'd actually use your your head a bit, wouldn't you? Well, you follow would. your nose type thing. I think we've lost You'd something. You'd go on there. AA planner. Do you ever do that? Go yeah. on AA planner. I was an RAC planner, like... man. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, like we'd go into races with my dad, we'd always get lost. And that was nothing to do with my map reading. Would, <laughs> he, he'd get lost going to Tesco. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's mad how quickly it's changed. Like, like you know, Garmin's like... We might have even had SRMs then, yeah. I don't think we had Garmin's, but yeah, you didn't have the maps on your bike either or anything. And um, yeah, it's crazy how much has changed in such a short, in a decade really, you know? I, to be honest, I know technology marches us forward and it's a good thing for us bike riders in many, many ways. But I do slightly miss that point where you weren't, let's say you were out exploring on your bike and you weren't entirely sure. And it was either a mix of someone who'd been on the ride before who you had to put your total faith in or you just had to use your memory and you were like, oh yeah, when we get past that house, it's definitely a left. Whereas when it's all just on the stem of your handlebars, you don't think. I still, to be honest, and I'm going very old school here, let's say you're out somewhere really wild, or in my case, if you're out on your mountain bike, um, there's something nice about having an actual map, an actual Mm. map, either in your jersey pocket or in your rucksack if you're mountain biking and pulling it out because you know that there's no batteries on a map. The batteries aren't ever going to fail. The screen's not going to crack. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah, it just feels, well, it's old school, isn't it? But you're just more aware of your surroundings as well because you have to take it in because you're like, right, I need to kind of know where I am and stay switched on about roughly having your bearings, you know, like... That's why I was quite, when I first moved down like to, to Monaco, you had the sea at least to sort of um, help you with that. But, you know, like just pre-race rides and stuff back in the day, I can't even remember what we did. You'd kind of just head out on one road and kind of just make sure you did a few right-hand turns and hopefully end up back at the hotel, you know? But um, 
different world. But and then even here, I was thinking. I'm not sure um, my teammates are the biggest fan of me, to be honest, Tom. Because in the Giro, I was having breakfast on my own. <laughs> that goes getting up quite late. Now I'm having lunch on my own. Like, okay, f- fair enough. I did an extra hour or so. But um, yeah, yesterday I got to the restaurant. It pretty much closed. There's no one there. It was just me. It's quite nice, actually. A bit of, you know, my own time. But sat there. Nice view of oh, the volcano. Tidy. Um but yeah, I was like, do, do the boys actually like me? <laughs> <laughs> this might be the generational gap, you know, they want to talk about stuff that maybe yeah. they think you don't understand. Twitch or something, you heard about Twitch? What's Twitch? You go on and watch other people play video games or something. What? I was like, what? I was like, I'm definitely too old for that. Grow up. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, I'm with you 100% on that. That won't surprise you. Talking of Taylor, you know what I'm going to ask. Have you been up to the cable car yet? Not yet, no. no. But this is the first rest day. Okay. Um, and I'm quite chocker with, with pods, Tom. You, you're working me hard. So um, maybe the second rest day I might, might get up there. Because I've got a new camera. I've got a mm. camera for Christmas. Because I like taking the odd picture. So, so I bought me a a decent sort of camera. So, um, yeah, it's just technical, man. There's so much on a camera which you can turn and twist and, you know, does stuff. I just need to get my head around it. I don't really know anything about it at the minute. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, watch this space for some cracking photos and from top of the volcano. Well, I'm going to hold you to that. Um, I'm also, before we get into today's episode, a couple of other things to tick off. I want to give a shout out to a fellow GTCC member, Warren Mason. So um, my weekend's riding was at a place called Betley Court Farm, just outside Crewe. This was another cross race in the Northwest Cyclocross League. As Storm Isha was coming in, there was a lot of flapping tape. There was a lot of, well, all right, there was a lot of tailwind in half the course and a lot of not tailwind in another half the course. But a shout out to Warren Mason, who um, is a regular listener, got into cross riding about three years ago, is very lean and very effective and always has a good ding dong battle with me. And also managed to hold a conversation together in the race when I was on my knees dry retching. So well played, <laughs> um, well played Warren. <laughs> Yeah, fair play. Was that the video you sent on the group? Yes. It's not glamorous, yeah, is weather. it, Cross? It's not, but at the same time, it's probably the best thing to do in a weather like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, rather than just going for a walk, because you're not really, at least in a cross race, you're working hard, you're keeping warm and, you know, you're feeling hard, aren't you? Well, it's short and punchy as well, isn't it? You're racing for just mm. under an hour. Uh, there's loads of climbs, there's loads of jumping off and running with your bikes. So you're not standing around getting cold. Yeah. Um, we have had a really nice message, G, from a listener who caught up with last week's pod with Ineos Chef James while completing stage four of Tour de Zwift, which is the longest of the lot. But this isn't any other ordinary listener. It's someone called Mark Turner, who is Big Ben Turner's dad. And he's got a suggestion. He says, when you're retired, you should go back to the tour and do a different staff member's job each day. What do you think? No chance. <laughs> you've t- no, you've we've, tasted the, the best there is to offer. You're not going to go yeah. back down this food chain, are you? <laughs> yeah, we've got it easy. You know, we have our own mattresses. You know, I don't know, aircon, mobile aircon units if there's no aircon in the room. We've got a chef. We get massage, bottles. Everything's made for us. You know, 
how could you go from that to doing the other side, you know, cleaning bikes, mending bikes? I couldn't mend a bloody puncher. Well, I could, but take me half an hour. <laughs> okay, well, not that one on the head. We've also had a message from Joe Hovenden, who got in touch to tell us that she and her boyfriend have been listening to the GTC from the very start. Nice work, Joe. They've got a new nickname for you, G. Now, I don't know if you've just seen this. They have recently been re-watching the original 1995 TV adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. This is the Colin Firth climbing out of a lake in a wet t-shirt. That reference will work for some of our listeners. Um, they now refer to you as Mr. Wickham. They say there is an uncanny resemblance. I've had, <laughs> I've had a look at a picture. We might put this on our social feeds. I'll tell you why they think they, this Mr. Wickham looks like you. I think in order of importance, it's the sideburns, it's the black curly hair. Uh, he's got a slightly G, in the picture I'm looking at, he's got a slightly G smile going on. L slightly less so, I would say, is the bright red military tunic. I've never seen you in a military tunic um, with fringed epaulets, but maybe that's how you dress <laughs> up in your spare time. Uh, I can't say I ever have, but um, I'm looking at the same picture now. <sighs> Yeah, I can kind of see it. I think it's maybe a cross between me and George, producer George, isn't it? <laughs> he's a little bit. He's quite producer George around the eyes, Mr. Wickham. Yeah, and the old hair. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, I've, I've definitely been um, likened to other people, like worse. No, how do I word this now? Less flattering? Yes, that's the one. Yeah. So um, Okay, give us some examples. Mark Soler. <laughs> I didn't expect it to be that direct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. Um, I don't know most of the people, to be honest. I just see a picture like, eh, it doesn't really look anything like me, but yeah, okay. Well, I think this is the start of something. If you think you have a better lookalikey for G, and in fact, I think we should widen this out, G, to other elite road riders lookalikeys. Um, send them to us on social media and we'll punt them around and talk about them on the next episode. Um, either on social media or gtcc at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Let's see where we get to. Um, now, let's introduce this week's guest, Matt Stevens. We ended up chatting to Matt for quite a long time because he was really interesting and we were having a good time. So what we've done... Well, he just chats a lot, Tom. He just doesn't shut up. Yeah, he's a good talker, isn't he? So here's what we've decided to do. We're going to split the chat this week into two parts so you don't miss out on any of the good stuff. So here's part one, and we shall release part two on Friday. Enjoy. Well, gee, we have got a bit of exciting news for our fellow GTCC members. We have partnered with Ketone IQ. We have, Tom. Um, do you know what it is? you got to help me out here. I know it's something to do with ketones, but I don't know what ketones are. Come on, what is it? Um, ketones are basically a different energy source for your body, really. So we use them in the team, mainly for performance and recovery, you know, kind of go hand in hand, really. But you can also use them for cognition. That's kind of a posh word, isn't it? But it's for like focus, really. So, you know, I know of some guys sat in an office, take it and help some well, focus basically for work or whatever they're doing. This sounds potentially very handy for a man who, like you, likes cycling or like me, likes talking and writing about cycling and sometimes needs to focus a little bit more. Yeah, you could definitely do with it every now and again, Tom. But um, they've kind of been around for a few years now. Everyone kind of thought that we were taking ketones like years and years ago, but 
it took us a while to actually even start it because the team wanted to do a lot of research and read papers and, you know, make sure it was doing what it says, basically. Um, so, yeah, but first kind of heard about it, HBMN from Cam in LA. He was raving about it. Oh, Cam Worth. Exactly, yeah. And you know what he's like. He talks a lot. So you got to take everything he says sometimes with a pinch of salt. But to be fair to him, this was one time when he was actually uh, talking a bit of sense. Nice. So give me a bit more detail here. Let's get down to nitty gritty. When do you use it? Uh, you can use it at the start of training. It can kind of help you there or for recovery. Um, we use it primarily for recovery after the stages and stuff. But another way of fueling your body really and it tastes a lot better. A couple of years ago, they used to be oh, horrible, absolutely horrible. But now now they're a lot better that is great news I was going to ask you about the flavour because let's be honest something can be really really good for you if it tastes disgusting you're going to do it once and never again exactly so if you want to try HVMN's Ketone IQ then visit hvmn.com forward slash gtcc for 30% off your first subscription order yes that's hvmn.com forward slash gtcc for 30% off your first subscription order. Go on, give it a try. Right, so today's guest is normally on the other side of the microphone, actually, asking me all kinds of questions from, I don't know, hard-hitting tactical questions at Grand Tours or to what my favourite type of biscuit is, basically. A former British champion on the road, he's become one of the most loved figures in the cycling media. Welcome to the GTCC, Matt Stevens. Welcome, mate. Cheers. Oh, no, th- I'm honoured. Thanks, thanks, G, and thanks, Tom, as well. I feel, uh, yeah, this is very unusual. As you've very eloquently put, this isn't normally what I do. So I feel yeah. a little bit, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But uh, it's the definitely boots not on the other foot, what geez. I do either. So, yeah. No. Like, no, we had all of on, so I'm making a bit of a habit of this now. Turning the table. <laughs> Who's going to be better at it? That's the question. Oh, no. Who's the poacher yeah. turned gamekeeper? Who's the gamekeeper turned poacher? That's quite... It's too... I've had a couple of pints, Tom, so I can't <laughs> quite work that question out. I'm, I'm, don't worry, I'm on the tee now, so it's absolutely fine. But uh, maybe we'll leave that to the listeners to work out at the end of there. They can draw their own conclusions, can't they? They can, they can. Tom, I think that's a bit too sort of <laughs> brutal as well. Gamekeeper and bloody poacher. or What, what was it? What did you say? It's more teacher and student, no? Oh, or, the master people becomes the master. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, because gamekeeper and poacher, there's this, if you don't mind me saying, I know we're going off on a slight tangent. I was hoping we would go off in tangents to protect me from a lot of heat, but it's, it's, a, it's quite dark, isn't it? When, you, when you're a poacher, you basically, you, you, there's, it's, a, it's a fight to the death, isn't it? But with a, with a teacher and a student, it's far more amicable. There's more of an exchange of experiences. So I'd rather it was at that level, lads, if that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. I mean, poaching tends to mean dead animals at some point, doesn't it? Certainly yeah. Danny Champion of the World, which is really my only experience of the poaching world and how, how realistic that was, how true to life. Um, but there were a lot of dead pheasants um, in that telling of it. So perhaps you're right. Yeah. Blimey. Years ago, I know this is, I don't know whether this is obviously this, this is going to go out kind of soon, but we're kind of in the festive season still, technically, aren't we, till the 6th of Jan. But I remember talking of pheasants. Well, it's not exactly a pheasant, it's a goose. I plucked a goose once for Christmas dinner. My dad shot it <laughs> in the 80s, and uh, I had to sit in the shed with all the bikes hanging up in the freezing cold and pluck a goose. 
uh, G. I don't know whether you experienced any of that stuff in Wales, but that was what was going on in North London in the 80s, mate. But yeah. You had to, you had to pluck a goose. You're very careful how you say that, G. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> physically plucked a goose. Uh, uh. Yeah. I mean, literally taking all, all the feathers out, literally, of this goose carcass and then having it for Christmas dinner. I'm still a bit scarred. Uh, it's the, the, you're, you're the, this is the first time I've actually publicly said that, G, to be honest with this. I, I felt like it's quite <laughs> cathartic. Yeah. This is, is there well, some well, sort of link with you in your riding days with you joining the first vegetarian team in pro cycling? Well, that was what a wonderful segue that was, Tom. That was very professionally crafted. Uh, it could be, but I've never thought of them directly. But now, you, now you've mentioned it. Maybe yes, and maybe we can explore that a bit later, or maybe not. But, you know. well, before we before we get into all that, um, well, my father-in-law actually used to have to kill his own turkey as well. No, well, he used to go into again. The, it sounds this sounds like a euphemism. Yeah, but then we'd go with his brother and his his dad, and they they'd kill the turkey for Christmas. Yeah, and he said like now he was like yeah, it'd just be a bit weird doing that now. But like, and he says he didn't know if he'd even even be able to do it now. But back then, it was just the norm, you know? But um, speaking of back then, though, uh, this is another good segue for you, Matt. Uh, yep. 80s and 90s was, it was a different time for British cycling. Like, you look now, Bloody I think, hell, mate. I'm not sure if this is um, accurate, but this is what George has told me, producer George. There's 33 current Brits in the World Tour for 2024. 33 Brits in the top echelon of bike racing. That was like unheard of back in um, the eighties and nineties, right? Like, it, it it was. I think when you go back to the eighties, and this is just off the top of my head, G, we probably had we had Malk, Malcolm Elliott, who rode with Tika and he, and then and then Robert Miller, and do you mm. know what? I can't. That's two. And then when I was doing it, and technically I was only in a pro Conti team, although we rode the big races. We had like three or four, like me, Dave Miller, Jez Hunt, Charlie Wigalius, and then Roger Hammond, a bit latterly. That was it. So we had like, so when was like that? three, Sorry. four, when five. Was- so that was so Dave. So I turned properly pro like 99. Dave Miller turned pro like 90s. That was with Linda McCartney. Right. And then, and yeah. then we had Jez Hunt with Bonesto riding yeah. with Miguel, Miguel. And then we had Dave. Miller riding with Cofidis. And yeah. that, that was, we were the only guys. And then, and then there's three of us. That was it. That's mad, isn't it? Yeah. And then a few more in the noughties and then it just built up from there, you know, but it was, yeah. So we didn't, we were like Johnny No Mates. We used to hang out with the Aussies and there's only a few of those back then. So we had this little Antipodean back of the peloton kind of vibe. When we had like stages in races where it was proper piano you'd just go back there'd be a couple of americans five or six australians and just generally one or two brits we used to hang around at the back and just catch up until yeah you know three hours and then we used to race but we used to have a little little enclave at the back of the peloton just catching up in english then the rest of the peloton was primarily french back then actually yeah it's interesting Did you speak it? french <laughs> yeah i can speak all right yeah so i, I learned it when i was racing there in, in the early when i was a an amateur striving to be a pro. So I picked it up then. It's rusty now, but I can get by. So I can do, I did a few interviews this year at the Tour in French, which I was quite ah. happy with. So I can I can nice. understand it and I can speak it all right. So yeah, it's all right. Très bien, très bien. Merci, c'est gentil. 
Yeah. Yours is all right. I've heard you. I've heard you parlay français a little bit, G. You know, it's a uh, yeah, jambon beurre baguette. That's, a that's bit, not uh, bad. Yeah, thanks. And when I take a picture, fromage. That's about it, though. That's nice. Yeah. Although that's, that's actually, nice, fromage yeah. wouldn't work because it puts your mouth in a different shape to the word cheese. Because it's not. This, yeah. th- that's the whole point of cheese. But it forces a smile, doesn't it? Cheese, cheese, fromage. Yeah, Oh, from, yeah, fromage is more of an O, isn't it? Yeah. I don't make the rules, Tom. Jesus. Okay. It's a little bit <laughs> blue steel, actually, fromage, isn't it? Fromage. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, depending yeah. on the kind of region that you kind of say fromage in, it can change slightly. But yeah, <laughs> uh, essentially two very different things. <laughs> so, Matt, when you were trying to make it, uh, were you looked upon by those French riders, by all those continental teams, as someone slightly strange? Was there yeah. more oh, yeah, work yeah. that you had to do to win teams and team managers over? Totally. Like when I decided, and I, I don't know whether you might have said, because I, I, I've said this a lot actually, and, it, and I think it puts it in a bit of context. So in 1996, I went to see the Tour de France with my dad. He took me there when I was 16 years of age. It was when Greg LeMond won uh, Bernard Hino that, that year. And Is I that was when Did he take the jersey? No, that was 94. So it's quite a lot. It's eight years later. So I was so, so me and, well, how old's Chris? Chris is about 56, isn't he? 55. I've just turned 54. But no, this was in the 80s. So this was, yeah. My dad was into cycling. I, oh, I wasn't really into it. did you say? Sorry. 86, yeah. 86, mate. Ah. Yeah, 86. So I, I went there. And anyway, cut long story short, saw it all unfold and was inspired by those guys. What stages and, uh, was it, Matt? Was it you in the mountains? Were you somewhere? Uh, Alpe d'Huez. Oh, sorry, yes. Yeah, Amazing. we went down to we went down to St Etienne, saw the time trial. Then we went to we went actually, G. So I rode up the Col de Granon in '86, and the mm. next time it was using the tour was the other year. You know when uh, what, when, when Tade, yeah, no, oh, when like sorry. last year the the Granon when we finished up it, right, right, right. Sorry, yeah, which was so it was a thirty year gap. Because I remember riding up that on forty-two twenty-three as a kid, uh, and 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 uh, having to get off and have a pat lunch halfway up. But all that sort of stuff. Anyway, I thought, do you know what? I I really want to try and be a pro cyclist. I never really anywhere near achieved what what G's achieved. But um, but what I did along the way was just um, have a bloody wild adventure. But it was very different. Although I was I was actually a pretty good bike rider, but you had to be an exceptional bike rider if you're in a French team or a Spanish team or an Italian team to make it to the next level. I won bike races, but you had to win seven, eight, ten bike races to get a contract. And it, yeah, it's a complicated story, but I was kind of cut off from the world. My my girlfriend at the time, she wasn't allowed phone calls, and I was yeah. If I was seen to be kind of weak and having like family relationships, it would all, it, it was. It was really dark, actually. They really like try and squeeze you emotionally to see if you could hack it. And I, I did hack it, but when you look back, it, without wanting to get out the tiny violin, it was pretty horrible. When you look back, it was like bullying, abuse level, like gaslighting being in a French team. And, and I, yeah. I, I kind of get it because they just wanted to see if you really were made of the... And, it, and, and the team I was in, ACBB, was the French Foreign Legion, they called it. That's where Alan Piper went through, Yatesy, Miller, Phil Anderson, Stephen Roach, all, uh, Paul Sherwin, all went through that same school that I did. And Paul Sherwin got me in the team. Um, 
and it but it was it was great we had a great um race program but jesus christ they absolutely screwed you mentally i, I was a sh but and we had our service course was in a prison cell so i actually <laughs> and then i went and joined the police 15 years later but my bed was in a prison cell wow so, and that was yeah. to try and like <laughs> like weed out the the weaker guys or it was just run by a bunch of knobheads sounds like more they were just knobheads to be honest I think it was culturally quite normal then G I'm too mm. honest with you mate but also I don't know whether the the guy that ran it was actually a bit of a legend up there with Cyril Guimard he's sadly no longer with us he died of cancer years ago but good friend of Stephen Roach um, but he was a bit of a a bit of a tyrant so I think it was a combination of the two I think he might have had his own issues in the past to be that horrible to people for no reason but mm. what it did I quickly learned that I needed to be less nice to people in a bike race and, and get ruthless. I was too nice. I still am really. But in a bike race, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'd do too much. I was, I was really yeah. strong, but I did too much. And he said, you need to be ruthless. You need to be ruthless. To the point he was, yeah, it was like a weird, he was like this overbearing teacher. But looking back as a mid-50s guy now, everything he said tactically was absolutely spot on. Because if you want to win bike races, mate, as you know, you've, you've actually got to be an absolute C, haven't you? You've got to, you know, you want to be nice off the bike, that's fine. But in a bike race, you've got to be a killer. Yeah. And maybe I, maybe I didn't have that. I, I just, it took me, by the time I was ruthless, I was too late. It was too late for me to make an impact. But yeah, interesting. It, <laughs> just a fact here. Yeah. You know, killer, that actually starts with a K, not a C. <laughs> so, oh, right. Okay, yeah. I'm sure, Tom, this is a family show, isn't it? Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. Nicely played. It was such a different world back there, Matt. And, um, you know, the, the experience you've just described there wouldn't happen these days. But no. you had a picaresque career, didn't you? Because you, had, you were in a team sponsored by Harrods at one point, which seems quite strange now. I'd be hoping there'd be all sorts of side hustles that came with it. Realistically, there, there probably were none. Um, there was no discount card that you could walk in and wave at Mr. Fired's security men? No, but I did have a, we had a a team launch at Harrods. And um, I remember it cost me two quid to go to the toilet. And that was like, <laughs> bloody hell, spit punchy, you know. And, uh, but I had a photo, uh, I, was, I was actually, when we had the, I had a photo taken with Al Fired by the D Lady Diana Memorial at the time. It was all quite surreal. In my, I was British champion at the time, weirdly, that's before I turned pro properly, but I was actually working in, at Marks and Spencer full time, but riding to work in Harrods kit. It was really, <laughs> mate, it was just, you couldn't make up how bizarre and dysfunctional it was. But um, no, so, but we were one of the first t teams to uh, have a bus. So we actually had, a, mm. in 1998, 1999, when we rode the Tour of Britain, the Pru Tour. Did you have, you wouldn't have ridden that, G, would you? That was a bit before your time, wasn't it? But you remember the Pru no, Tour? Yeah, I think it was... 04 was like when the new one started, I think. That's right, yeah. So this is like five or six years before that, but we were the, mm. one of the only teams to have a team bus. But then what we found out afterwards was that the team got invoiced by Harrods for the use of that bus because that was the bus that they used to take <laughs> tourists on around London. So we got like a nine grand invoice in the late 90s to use that bus. for the So it was all, it just lost money, mate. Um, but it was, so there, was a, there were only perks where we had a really nice jersey. And, uh, and we look quite posh, but behind the scenes, 
like, there's a guy that I'm still friendly with now who used to run it um, and he's a lovely guy but it was absolute chaos but we had a good time and it's generally been every team I've been in has been chaos behind the scenes but I've had a good time so what, how old were you then? I was wow I was actually I was 28 29 then oh so, so was I was like, you were really quite yeah well for these mature. days old yeah yeah so so I so I, I'd already got like the Commonwealth Games and I did the Olympics in 92 under my belt and I, like just trying to trying to try and racing internationally GB stuff World Championships 95 top 10 on the road and then fuck and I nearly got I nearly signed for US Postal that would have been interesting wouldn't it that would have been another chat that we could have had that on a different been. tangent perhaps <laughs> but that all fell through um, so what year was that that was nine, the end of 95 at the Worlds I got approached by Eddie Borshevitz who's no longer with us as well uh, and said we want a climber for US this new team US Postal uh, we'd like to sign you so I said yeah that'd be great but there was no emails then, no mobile phones. It was just literally phone calls. And there was a couple of weeks went by and I rang him up and he'd been sacked by the team. And then it, and nobody else in the team knew, really knew what I'd done. So it mm. all just, it was, it was, I remember going to races the years after with a, with a scrapbook of my results and giving it to direct sportifs, mate. Mm. You know, like cuttings from the paper and like typed out results and photographs and giving it to guys that, you know, and then finally it happened, but um, but the, the technological side meant that you were really, really disconnected. So regardless of how good you were, unless you knew somebody or unless you'd won the world or you'd won some really big races, you know, there was the top end of it and then there was this big drop off and then anybody within there, it was kind of chaos and you kind of, who you knew, you'd get into teams. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it was quite, uh, but that way, so you're just hustling for like, I reckon I, I just hustled for 10 years like trying to turn pro and eventually did it through just fucking belligerence and like <laughs> working hard. And then in a, eventually I was 30 when I turned, when I rode the Giro, did all the big races. I was 30, mate. So I did mm. all the big, big stuff. That's nuts, isn't it, G? Like, and Matt, for those who aren't familiar with the slightly crazy story of the Linda McCartney racing team, give us a couple of choice uh, vegetarian morsels. Um, so we, we had to be vegetarian. Okay. So we had a contract yeah. uh, to say that you couldn't eat, be seen to eat meat on the on races. But I thought, so I, I did, so I quite, we had a bloody good, I did 90 days. I broke my collarbone in the September of that year and I'd done 92 days of racing up to September, which is kind of like would put me at the top of anybody nowadays race. I was just like relentlessly yeah. raced. But as I was away from home so much, I thought I can't eat meat on the road so I, and I can't eat when I'm back. So I, I actually did go veggie. So I, I just lost five kilos just like within like, and I just was like so lean. So, and, and quite, quite good, you know, quite good. But I know, I don't know what the other lads did in, in terms of being a veggie, but we had to be vegetarian. So we basically had a couple of vegetarian chefs that came along in our races. We met these guys at the Setamana Bergamasca, which is the copy of Bartoli now, isn't it? And these yeah. guys are hanging around the hotel and we're like talking to our manager and then they did an agreement they're going to come and cook our food so they came on the Juro Terreno and all that with us. So we were properly vegetarian. So that, that was that. must have been one of the only teams of having, having chefs back then then. Or, yeah, or totally. Yeah, yeah, they just used to commandeer. That there was nobody really that had chefs to you. You're quite right. Yeah. I don't remember them. And, but we did. There's just two guys and they were like, they were, I think they were hipsters before hipsters was actually a thing. 
So they were actually just, but cook it. So we had like this macrobiotic, meat-free, wheat-free, dairy-free diet racing. And I honestly felt, you know, you know, gee, you'll know what it's like. You know, when you're absolutely, and, and Bradley described it as when you turn the screw and it nearly snaps, when you're so light, but so strong, but you know mm. that if you go one step further, you're just going to implode. You're just going to be, so I got to that point, but not as strong as you guys, but but I felt if I shut my eyes, that my body was like like see through. So the combination of being lean, not eating meat, it felt like I could see all my internal organs as if they were made of like like a cling film. It's really fucking really weird. But I got super light. Uh, but I don't. But on the on the other hand, I don't know whether I'd recommend it or not because I think it could be too too insane. But there are people who are vegans. There's a pros that are vegans, but. I don't know. Is there? It was a, it, yeah, yeah. There's several pros that are vegans, mate. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Ross Down is a vegan. I know he's not a pro anymore. <laughs> but he's not world tour. But there's a, there's a few. I don't know, wow. Tom. Do you know? There's there's definitely five or six world tour pros that are vegan. Well, it's happened in a few sports. I think Jermaine Defoe was the first footballer to go vegan, but it's 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 spread probably from the real world, if we want to put it like that way into the cycling world, hasn't it? There will, there will naturally be, if there are trends in the real world, well, they will, you'd expect to see them appear in a large group of, of men in, between the ages of 20 and 40. Yeah, I think we were un... <laughs> we had no choice. It was just like, well, you're a vegetarian or... or uh, and, but I did crave bacon and, and chicken, Jesus <laughs> Christ. When I broke my collarbone and went back home, I just, I, I've never eaten so much bacon in all my life. Um, Did the chefs and, stick to their own diet as well? The chefs weren't giving you macrobiotic stuff and then tucking into a steak or two. Were no, they? The, the, they were pretty, from, from, from memory, and uh, they were actually pretty solid. They had like an integrity. So they were actually cooking us the same food. So we, but we didn't, but it went like one, like we rode the Giro and honestly, I didn't eat obviously meat, dairy or wheat. So that's mad. There's not a lot left in food, honestly. No. But I just had like fucking protein powder, and um, I was I was climbing all right. I was climbing apart from when I hurt my knee. I was climbing all right, relatively speaking, you know, but because I was just so bloody light. But the way to get the protein in was, you know, it was was hard. You know, just like protein powders all the time. It, it wasn't mentally mm. sustainable. I don't think. Yeah, you must have done well. You must have been lucky to still be able to race well though at whatever weight that was, eating what you were eating. Because if that was me, I think I would just, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do it. No, I was borderline, because I loved, I don't know what your favourite meal of the day is. Maybe that's a good question, but mine was always breakfast because I used to you know, wake up hungry. When you're racing, you wake up generally hungry, don't you? And you have a good breakfast. Mm. But the breakfast was just, you know, there's no, like generally breakfast is like milk or yogurts and stuff with like muesli and, and that's quite comforting because there's fats in there, which the, human brain craves but none of that so so the whole so eating became rather than something that you look forward to became a process and then so the, the racing's a progress a process and for us it was just finished inside the bloody time limit so that's a process that you're looking at thinking fucking hell i've got to get inside the time limit and i've got to do this and before power me is hmm. but then you finish the race and there wasn't the food to look forward to as if like normal food, it was just, oh my God, the food's a process. So the whole thing was psychologically really fucking, really uh, quite horrible, actually. I still love the memories, but when you yeah. think back, you think, oh my God, that was absolutely brutal. And, and it was in a time where 
there was other things going on as well. So it, so the gap between, so it's just, it was felt like I was just surviving and going through some weird boot camp, not like riding a grand tour. It was weird. Yeah, I can't imagine like even now, like French, they don't really cater for veggies, let alone vegans. So if there was any French or Italians or Spanish in, because there was a few in, in Linda McCartney, right? It wasn't like all Brits. So it must have been, or foreigners or, because they must have really yeah, struggled you know with what? that then or they just had their own well, well, supply of chickens. <laughs> we just had a little like chicken coop on the back of the, on the, back <laughs> of the camper. But we, actually the, the following year, the year that never was when the team folded, we did have a lot of Spaniards, a couple of French guys, Aussies, but the t- our team, when we, so we're a T2 team, so the equivalent of Pro Conti now. So the squad yeah. for the start of that season, we had 10 riders. That was the entire fucking squad. So even World Tour teams Ten. had 12, 16 riders. 10. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So we only, had, we only had eight riders to pick from. Uh, so we picked eight and two, two lasted a day, um, which for reasons we don't need to go into, but are well documented. Two, two lasted a day. And then the rest of us, so there's me, Kieran Power, who's a, an Irish lad, who's a lovely lad. Uh, he got like top five on three or four stages against Cipollini. Max Gandry, who's Italian, but from Derby, where I live now. Um, yeah. And who do you have? Uh, Maurizio Di Pasquale, who's another Italian lad. And then we had Taya Breaker and Bjorn Vestal, two Norwegians. And, and Maka, Dave McKenzie, who works for SBS, who won a stage that year. He bloody fucking won a bloody stage, the Giro. From, so I remember that. Was that a mad breakaway on his own or with one other guy? Like a real long breakaway? It, it, on his own. He, he yeah. chipped off on his own into a, he chipped off on his own into a headwind. And um, they started chasing. He got about 12, 15 minutes. Then they started chasing. And then it turned into a tailwind on the, on the running. And um, we just didn't give him any chance at all. But, and then Max went up to the front and said, look, this lad's going to blow. Because Max is quite, you know, Max. You know, he's... Yeah. He's really charming, but he's also, he's, he's also, well, back then, and he's respected now, but he was a guy that in the peloton, he wasn't quite a patron, but he was somebody that people listened to. So he went up the front and, and said to the guys that were chasing, the team that were chasing, why are you chasing this guy? He's, he's, he's not going to win. He's going to blow you. You're wasting your energy chasing him. Just let him blow naturally and he won't win. Mm. And it was an actual stroke of genius. Like Dave still had to do the ride of his life, but that little bit of extra smoke and mirrors that Max offered up at the front of the bunch gave us a stage win, you know, and we, and you know, so not taking anything away from Dave, but I was there seeing it happen. I thought that's smart. That's really smart. It's really cool. Mm. But, um, but then they full on chase at the finish and they, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't catch it. But, See, this yeah. is what we need, Jay, is you enter the final two years of your contract. You just need a Scandry style figure. <laughs> get yourself up the road, uh-huh. get a Scandry style figure to have a little word. Listen, he's 38 now. He's not going to stay out there. We all know that. His best days are behind him. Leaving That's you free. Bush. Yeah, I would say that was a job for Luke, but he'd be, he wouldn't be quite as um, tactile as Max. <laughs> <laughs> he'd just go effing and blinding and threaten people. But, but also, the thing is, Jay, you've got, I mean, I love Maka to bits, but Maka at that point hadn't won the tour and second in the Giro and second in the... T- <laughs> yeah, you've got slightly more worrying Palmares, haven't you? So I don't know whether you're going to be let up the road an inch, mate, to be honest with you. <laughs> so Matt, the Lyndon McCartney team folded, as you said, 
pretty much out of nowhere, I guess, as far as the riders were concerned. That then led to, I suppose, another unexpected turn in your career, and you found yourself working for Morrison's, um, the supermarket. I wonder, I, did, on your CV, did you put Harrods down and just not mention that it was the cycling team, so that the general manager of which branch of Morrison's was it? Crew. Crew. So the crew manager of his, bloody hell, this bloke, he's worked in some proper supermarkets. We'll have him. Do you know what? This is not a word of a lot. I remember sitting in the office. Like, So bear in mind, which you've, you've obviously set the context quite well there. And well done, Tom. You've done your research. That's quite niche knowledge, that is. Uh, mm-hmm. I ended up, the team folded at the team launch. The team folded. I tried to get a ride yeah, with I was going to say, it folded in yeah. Feb, didn't it? Dead early yeah. on. Like it, the worst time ever, like it's never a good time for a team to fold, but in February, you're never going to get another team then, are you? Or a lot of people. So basically it folded and I was sharing a room with Neil Stevens, who was the D- one of our DSs, woke up, went down to the what we thought. Brad was there, um, Mark Scanlon, Russ Downing, John Tanner, a couple of lads who, who now haven't raced since they basically stopped. Um and we had like 16 or 18 guys, 15 staff, all the bikes, all the kit laid out. And then we got a fax saying the team had, had ended. There was no money. I won't go into details there, but it was clearly there wasn't a team. Although we'd already ridden the tour down under. I mean, this is how scandalous it, the whole was, you know. But the sponsors on the jersey that tore down under, Jacobs Creek and, and Jaguar, actually hadn't agreed to sponsor a team. They just made the jerseys. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's like, huh. it, it is like a film. I mean, there was a book we'll written about it. We'll just put their name on and then afterwards try and get the money out And then we'll see if we can sort it out, yeah. Um, <laughs> so they were like, oh, God. we don't sponsor a cycling team. Anyway, so I, the first thing I did, because I'd got offered a contract with Cofferness the year before. So Dave wanted a climber in the team. And I said, look, Dave, I've already been offered a contract with Linda McCartney. So thanks very much. So he ended up signing Halesey. For the not as a climber, but just as a rider for you know, as a obviously yeah. fucking decent rider for a coffee list. So I rang Dave up. We just got back from a training ride. He said, "Oh shit, Matt, I'll, I'll have a word with Alan Bondu, who's the DS." And unfortunately, rang me back, and there was no place. But they did take two riders, but two riders from our team that were far superior than me. So I didn't like bear any grudges. That's life. So two days later, I'm signing on the dole. A week later, I'm working at Morrison's, filling the shelves in the in the, in the middle of the night because that was a slightly better rate. But yeah, the guy said, I think you're overqualified for this, aren't you? And I said, I need to pay the bills, mate. So... Um, I didn't even realise yeah. Morrison's was a thing back then. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know when they started. Supermarket. Maybe. Ken Morrison. Ken Morrison founded it. A little bit of supermarket knowledge for us. That's good knowledge, Tom. Jesus, mate. That's good knowledge. Niche, isn't it, really? Yeah. But um, it's, it's come it's to the really good knowledge. I'd say it's uh, <laughs> unique knowledge. I'd I say think it was a northern thing, Morrison's, wasn't it? So crew totally. being Cheshire is probably at that point was the southernmost limit. So I wonder, gee, if Morrison's had extended to South Wales or not at that point. There's no answer, <laughs> yeah, is no, there? I don't know if I've asked that question. No. I think there are some Morrison's in well, I've definitely been to some Premier calendars in the noughties. Uh, in the, oh, there's, 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 there's a few Morrison's knocking about now in the Wales, isn't there? There is now, but when was it? 2001 or something, wasn't it? 2001, yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah. Tesco's world in Cardiff at that point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, but then Morrison's, didn't yeah. they take over Safeway? I mean, we're going off on another supermarket <laughs> podcast. They, they did a, they did like an aggressive takeover of Safeway, I think, didn't they? I think they did. Safeway. It's possible. It's definitely possible. 
but no, surprised so, George the producer yeah. hasn't prepped us for this time. Iceland. We had Iceland. He had Iceland. Anyway, so. yeah. No, no, mate. I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of Iceland. Not been in for a while, but they do some good deals if you get it. You know, especially ahead of Christmas. <laughs> I'm just surprised it's not all frozen in there. No. In Iceland. It's not. Because when I went to Iceland, there's a little Icelanding crew. God, sorry about this, Tom, but I've got to, I've got to box this bit off. Yeah, sorry. Because I went to Iceland thinking it would just be freezers. <laughs> And they have fridges and also bits where there's not even frozen food. We could buy biscuits. I was just like, what's going on? Yeah, Chris. It's like going into Poundland and seeing stuff for two quid. Oh, that confused yeah. me the other day. I went in with the boys. I gave them the big bill of everything here's a quid. Went in there, things for two ninety nine, three pounds, four pounds. Oh, that's ridiculous. But is it called Iceland? Because every, most things in there are on ice. Not everything, as we've discovered. Or is there a link with the country? I think, I think... They should, but I think G should sign an Ineos Grenadiers shirt <laughs> and have it as a prize for people that answer the correct question to that. <laughs> like, is it the land of ice, basically? That's what I assumed. And me and my best mate, my best man, Ian, we used to go there. Like in school, he had the hots for one of the girls that worked in there. We used to go in there and just buy big <laughs> bags of Sensations Crisp, checking out this this chick on the checkout. Like, what flavor Sensations That's... was it? Was his go-to? Was it uh, like roast chicken? Is it? Roast chicken and thyme, is it? Yeah. Yeah, roast chicken. That's deep knowledge. Oh my God, this is, you guys are good at like unnecessary knowledge, aren't you? I like it. The thyme would have taken it into the, the <laughs> sensations range. That's the mark of the sensations range, isn't it? Totally. It's a little bit different, a little bit avant-garde. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so post Morrison's, you're still racing your bike, map, but you're doing it sort of semi-pro, aren't you? Is this when you started working for the Cheshire Police? Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, I fell out of love, as you, as you can imagine, I... Uh, all that time, like literally, Giro, starting in Rome, racing with my heroes, Pantani, Cipollini, six months, seven months later, in Morrison's, filling the shelves. Not that that's, you know, people, you know, that's, that's but it was like such a big, it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do in my life? And I, that I was isn't also, real, isn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah, I've never changed. felt like, yeah, I had no, like, no money, sold the bike. Luckily, Principia, bless them, the, the brand that gave the team the bikes. They must have just written all the bikes off because they said you can have your bike. And I, I sold that bike for two and a half grand and I gave it, the guy, I met a guy at Junction 16 of the M6 in the service station, a little chef, came in. I put it in Cycling Weekly. He rang me up. Is that Sandbatch Services? Sandbatch Services. Yeah. Put, got the bike out of the boot. Of the car. He, gave me, he gave me all this like wonga, a load of cash. And I thought I can pay the mortgage for five months off the back of that. And he said, have you got any more like old cycling kit? And I said, have I? So I said, wait here, <laughs> drove back to crew. It's a 45 minute round journey. Came back with another, like literally a big bag of kit and made another 800 quid. And then that tidied me over while I was on the dole and then got a job. Oh mate. And then I, then I thought, what am I going to do? Ultimately I joined the police and then, and then got my mojo back. A, a good friend of mine, well, one of my best mates, actually, Ian from Sigma, the CEO, um, he, he gave me some cash. Went, I actually went to his shop, got introduced to him. I said, look, I just want to ride domestically. I want to get my mojo back. And, I, and he said, I know you're a bit skint, Matt. You're right. And I said, I'm a bit skint, but and I'll tell you I'll the money. He said, I'll give you three grand for the year. I said, that'll be right. That'll cover all my expenses to race domestically. I've got a job. And he said, right. And he went into this little safe. This is before Sigma was a big deal. Gave me 1,500 smackers in notes. <laughs> And, and that's one of the most important things anybody's ever done to trust me, give me that money. And I could, that's another two or three months the mortgage is paid. And I'll never forget that moment where I thought, 
thank, thanks, mate. You got me out of a shithole here and I can afford to do stuff. And then got my mojo back and started to be a good, a reasonable bike rider again, all things considered within the UK scene. And then we got built Sigma up to be a UCI team, did the tour of Britain, started to bring some younger lads through um, whilst I was in the police. And, and I think while I, when I was in the job, uh, more than even cycling, really, that's, I really learned a lot about who I actually was and what I was all about and what, where my strengths and weaknesses lay. And latterly, working in the, in the areas that I worked, that's where I thought, that's where I discovered that I was a, an okay communicator. And then eventually it led to what I'm doing now. So, in, you know, to fast track 12 years. So that's essentially how that led. But, uh, but actually, uh, looking back, I, I don't regret it, you know. It's like, it's what my life, they're the cards I've dealt. And I don't regret a single thing apart from I would love to ridden the tour, and uh, that 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 bites away at me a little bit. But do you know what? I'm I'm all right. I'm all right. He is definitely an interesting man, but I think we need to put this into context. G. Um, there's almost no other guest that I can think of who we've given a two-parter to, and that includes the likes of Tade Pogacar. It includes Wout van Aert. It includes Mathieu van der Poel. So Matt has done well for himself. Yeah, fair play. Um, he's an interesting guy as well, isn't it? Like, I, before we had him on, I'd obviously known him for a long time, but I didn't realise all the random stuff he'd kind of done with, you know... Um, what was the supermarket he said he worked in now? Yeah, Morrison's. In, yeah. Morrison's. In Morrison's and like in the police and all this type of stuff. So, um, yeah, man of the world, isn't he? Oh, Matt. He is. So that was part one um, on Friday. We'll have part two. We'll see you then. Ciao for now. Network, a place where you belong.